Hey church, it's wonderful to be sharing God's word with you today. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Carter, and I'm glad that you have tuned in uh, this day, this Sunday, to hear from God's word. We are going to be jumping into Jonah chapter 3 today, as we spent last week as Pastor Sam shared from Jonah chapter 2, and our series is called In the Same Boat. What we're going to see here is a second chance, and we love second chances. I want to tell you of a story about a man who received a second chance. He was a man that was born to a military family, and so his dream was to be in the army like his father and his grandfather before him. And so when he was of age, he joined the army. And he was a man who was very straightforward. He was very uh, stubborn. He was brash. He was strong-willed. And so when he got into the army, that actually was helpful for him because he was able to climb the ranks as he became a lieutenant. But it was difficult to get along with him. And so this was during the time of the Vietnam War, and he goes to fight in Vietnam, and he is assigned a company of men, and they're fighting in the jungles of Vietnam, and it, there's a firefight that they're engaged in, he and his company of men. And they begin to take casualties, and he, in fact, is wounded, lying on the floor, the jungle of Vietnam, he thinks he's going to die. And one of his men comes to him and picks him up to take him out of the jungle. And he says, no, no, leave me here. Let me die. Go save yourself. And yet this man, man takes him and gives him a second chance at life. And he recovers. Comes back to the States, but it was not an easy second chance. You see, as he came back to the States, he was going to begin a new life now. No longer in the army. And that wound actually caused him to lose his legs. His legs were amputated and he began to suffer from depression, and he secluded himself away, and he became an alcoholic as well. Several years later, that friend came and visited him over the Christmas holidays and spent some time with him and told him about a business that he was going to start. And this man who was suffering with this second chance, feeling like he was blowing it, said, listen, I don't know if you're ever going to start this business, but if you do, I will join you. Years later, his friend did start that business, and he was a man of his word, and he came and he joined him. He helped him grow the business. He learned how to invest. In fact, he invested early in Apple computers and made a fortune. And that was his third chance. He really took a hold of life. And there's a great redemption arc in this man's story because he gets married to a Vietnamese woman. And he gets prosthetic legs and begins to walk again. This man is Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. We love second chance stories. Many of us love that movie. We love other movies and books. We love stories and documentaries about people that have a second chance. We want to see how they take hold of that. And we want to see the redemption arc in people's lives. And that's what happens here in the book of Jonah. God gives Jonah a second chance. It says this in Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. See, God's word came to Jonah in the very beginning in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, and he's going to say something very similar to what he said to him then at the very beginning. But Jonah was stubborn. Jonah did not listen. He refused. He ran from the Lord. And as we saw last week, it culminated in him getting swallowed by a fish. He was in the belly of the fish for three days, and now he spit out on the shore. And it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, 
And it said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. I have this joke uh, with the church, with Crossbridge. Maybe you've heard me share it before, and that is that we are a two-time church. And what I mean by that is that there are times where I will say, hey, how's everybody doing today? This was back when we used to meet together in person, which can't wait till we get to do that again in the future. But you say, how's everybody doing? And it was like crickets. It was, everyone's like, ah. okay, church, how are we doing? And then the second time everybody would come in, there'd be enthusiasm. I would make a point in a sermon. I would say, respond with me. And it would be like, ah, just a little clap. But then if I said, hey, let's, let's respond again, there would be the second time and there'd be greater response. We're a two-time church. But that's actually interesting because we are two-time people. It's not unique to Crossbridge. We are two-time people. It takes us two times, at least, oftentimes three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times to get it. In fact, David writes in Psalm 62, listen to what he says. He says, once I heard, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. He said, God, you spoke one time, but it took me twice to hear it. That power belongs to you, not to me or not to anyone else. Job, as he's struggling with understanding all the suffering happening in his life, he says near the end of the book of Job in Job 42, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And so therefore I repent in dust and ashes. He says, God, I... I, I have heard of you, I knew of you, but it took me not only hearing, but it took a second time for me to see you and to see the way that you're working for me to really understand who you are, God, and therefore I repent. We are two-time people. Praise God that God is slow to anger and he's abounding in love and he is gracious to us because it takes us two, three, four, five, six, seven, Eight times. You see, our God is a God of second chances. We see that here with Jonah. We see that in our lives as well. I don't know if you ever feel like this, but you feel like God has given you a second chance and you've blown it. He's given you a new relationship. He's given you new opportunities. He gave you a new job. He gave you a new friend circle. He gave you a new city. He gave you new forgiveness. And you feel like you've blown it. Well, Jonah had to have felt like that as well. Because God gave Jonah not just a second chance, but many, many chances. You see, in Jonah chapter 1, God comes to him and he says, Arise, Jonah, and go to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against it. And and Jonah says, "Uh, No. (laughs) Nope. I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to do, God. You're going to call them to repentance, and I'm not okay with that. I don't like the Ninevites. I'm going to run, and I'm going to flee from your presence. I'm going to get in a ship. I'm going to go across almost the entire world as far as I can to Tarshish. And so God gives him a second chance. He gets in that boat. He heads out, and God sends a storm and says, while God sends the storm, what does Jonah do? He sleeps. So God gives Jonah a third chance. As Jonah is sleeping, God sends the captain. The captain comes down. He wakes Jonah up, and he says, Jonah, you need to pray to your God. And what does Jonah do? He refuses. So God gives Jonah a fourth chance. He makes the storm more tumultuous. 
more violent. The sailors are panicking. They're trying to figure out why has the storm come upon them, and they realize that it is Jonah, and Jonah says, hey, it's me. Just throw me overboard. He still has not prayed. He still has not repented. He still has not turned back to God whatsoever, but he said, throw me overboard. It's my fault. I feel bad for you. But the sailors try to row and get back to shore, so Jonah comes and he gives God comes to Jonah and he gives him a fifth chance. The sailors finally have no other option but to throw Jonah overboard. And instead of Jonah sinking to the bottom of the ocean, as his last minutes of life, God sends a fish that swallows him up. And Jonah there inside of the belly of the fish finally begins to turn back to God. And he prays. The first time in the story, he prays. God spits him out on the shore and he gives him a sixth chance. And he says to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Just like I told you the first time, this is the sixth chance, Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah finally listens. Church, if you feel like God has given you a second chance or maybe a third or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth chance and you have blown each and every single one of them, If God's grace is big enough to give Jonah, who is running from his presence time and time again, six chances you have not exhausted God's grace. You are not even close to exhausting God's grace. God's grace is like walking around the earth. It never ends. You're just going to keep walking around the earth. What I'm trying to say is this. God's grace is not like walking on a flat earth. Or you get to the edge, and I think there's an ice cliff or something, and then what's over the, you step over the abyss, and you go into the darkness. I don't really know what happens. Do you fall off the edge of the flat earth into space? But that's not God's grace. There's no end. It keeps going. God gives a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth chance. So Jonah finally obeys. He finally obeys, and he makes the journey to Nineveh. And he had to have been wrestling with that sixth chance and that word that came to Jonah now the second time because it was very similar to the first word that God gave him, but with a slight difference. You see, here in our version, this is the English Standard Version, ESV. It's the Bible translation that we use most of the time. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Now, this translation misses something that is vital to understand what God is doing here. It uses the word against instead of the word proclaim. The reason I tell you that is because the original Hebrew between Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 and Jonah chapter 3 verse 2 has a slight difference in the beginning In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, in the original Hebrew, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against. And then it says, because their wickedness has come up before God. But here, it says, Arise, and go to Nineveh, and proclaim to. The difference is that in the first chapter, it says, cry out against, and here, it says, proclaim to. Why is that important? Because there's a big difference between crying out against someone and proclaiming to someone. Crying out against someone is negative. It is pushing that person away. 
There's a sense of judgment attached to it. But proclaiming to someone is moving towards them. It seems to signify some type of grace, some type of love. So what is God doing here? He's revealing to Jonah his heart that Jonah was fearful of all along. It's why Jonah ran away, because though God told Jonah to cry out against the Ninevites because of their wickedness, Jonah was fearful that God would call them to repentance, that he would show his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And so here, after the sixth chance, God says, you're going to go to Nineveh, and you're going to proclaim to them. You're not going to cry out against them. You're going to proclaim to them. You see, God is against sin. He is against evil and injustice. But God is gracious, and he loves to love the sinner. God is against the sin, but he loves to love the sinner. And he moves toward the sinner. And so here, Jonah is called not to cry out against them for their wickedness, but to move to them with what? It says, the message that I will give you. That is so important. God says, Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh and you're going to proclaim to them, not your opinions, not your thoughts, not your solutions. You are going to proclaim to them the word that I give you, the message that I give you. There's a word here for preaching, for the congregation as well. You see, preaching is God's word in the preacher's mouth. The purpose of preaching is that God would speak through a broken vessel and a weak vessel. Powerful, transformative truth. That's the purpose of preaching. That God's word would come through the mouth of another. You see, that's why I, for myself and for the other pastors on the staff, and I'm sure many, many pastors all across this globe, before we share God's word, we spend time praying that God's word would come through us. As we're preparing, we're asking the Holy Spirit not to give us our thoughts, but his thoughts as we're interacting with his word. And so we trust that God would move through the mouth of a broken vessel. You see, genuine gospel preaching is God's word coming through the mouth of another. Genuine gospel preaching is God's word coming through the mouth of another. Listen, the authority of preaching is not found in the personality of the preacher, but in the power of the author of the message. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen in the chat? The authority of preaching is not found in the personality of the preacher, but in the power of the author of the message. And that's why God's word is powerful when it is preached. Because it is not about my opinions and my thoughts or anyone else that shares God's word. It is the power of the author of the message. You see, if you're listening to preaching... And it doesn't make you uncomfortable at times. It doesn't cause you to pause and reflect at times. It, the preacher isn't preaching about sin and judgment at times. That victory and change is not rooted in God's grace. It doesn't call you to, to combat injustice. That it doesn't speak about forgiveness being God alone who provides. 
that you hear more about God's desire to bless you than God's desire for you to bless him. Or that you hear that God's word is always yes. You're probably not listening to gospel preaching because that's certainly not God's word. It may be attractive, but it's not effective. The power is not in the opinion or in the personality or in the charisma of the preacher. It is in the author of the message. That is where the power is found. Listen, church. My word will do nothing for you, but there is a word. My word will do nothing for you, but there is a word. Amen. Our words do nothing, but there is a word. And God has a word for us, church. There is a word for us as we are in the same boat, as we are navigating what seems like multiple storms. And God's word can say many things, but here's one thing that I think God's word is saying to us. Run first to scripture before you present your solutions. Run first to scripture before you share your suspicions. Run first to scripture before you share your sentiments. There is a word for us. This is our word, church. It is powerful because the author behind the message is supremely powerful. And it has the power to change everything. You see, the gospel has the power to change everything. The gospel can change our habits. It can change our worship. It can change how we work. It can change how we deal with conflict. It can change how we deal with disappointment. It can change how we think. It can change how we deal with the complexities of life. It changes everything, and it in fact changes how we engage with culture. God's word changes everything. The gospel changes everything. What does his word say to us here? I think it says something really important. It says, are you only crying out against or are you proclaiming to? Are you only crying out against people and things or are you moving to? Now listen, there are things that we are to cry out against. God is against evil and injustice and sin, and we are to cry out against evil and injustice and sin, but God does not stop there. He moves toward people. He moves to. So do we only cry out against, or do we move to? Do we proclaim to people? Because your opinions and my opinions are not going to help anyone, but there is a word. There is a word that can change everything. And God says to Jonah, you are going to go to Nineveh. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to them, not your opinions, not your thoughts, but the message that I give you. That's where the power is, Jonah. The message that I give you. It says that Jonah goes to Nineveh. As we read in the text, God says that, jo- that Nineveh is a great city. That's really confusing because, 
Yes, Nineveh was a large city. It was a well-known city. It was a very successful city. But how could God say that Nineveh is a great city? Nineveh is exceedingly wicked. In fact, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to cry out against their wickedness. How can that be a great city? We know from history that the Romans most likely adopted the form of torture known as the crucifixion from the Ninevites. This is an exceedingly wicked city. And yet God says it is a great city. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh because it matters to me. You see, we cannot judge what matters to God by the wickedness of those that matter to God. We are not allowed to sit in the seat of judgment to judge those that matter to God because of the wickedness of those that matter to God. We are people that so often just look at the outside. We look at the outward wickedness while God is concerned with the wickedness of the heart. We are people that are consumed with presenting rational solutions while God is consumed with repentance. We are people that make judgments of others based upon their merits while God's judgments are grace to those in faith in Christ that turn towards him. You see, we are to move to people, not just stand against, because that's what God does for you and for me, as he does for the Ninevites. And when God moves towards someone, when someone matters to God, when something matters to God, God sends his word. Every time God sends his word when someone or something matters. You see, God is not afraid of the things that make us feel like our world is falling apart. God knows and he has given us his word because when God's word is unleashed, it has the power to change everything. In fact, God's word is so powerful that even people in high places will bow in repentance. Do you believe that? Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's word, when it is unleashed, is so powerful that it can cause anyone, even those in high places, to bow before God in repentance? Do you believe that? Do you pray that? Do you proclaim that? Jonah was fearful of that. That's why he ran from Nineveh. And yet, that's what Jonah goes to Nineveh to deliver, a message to proclaim to them. And I think sometimes that we, we don't proclaim to people the message of God, the gospel, because we're, we're afraid that we're going to get it wrong. We're not going to say it the right way. It's not going to be deep enough or articulate enough. So we just kind of hold it in. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He finally gets there. He's walking throughout the city. I'm sure he's noticing a lot of the different things that are wicked, the different worship of multiple gods and some of the things taking place. And he's supposed to share a message. And Jonah shares the most pitiful sermon of all time. The most pitiful sermon of all time. Here's what he says in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here's Jonah's sermon. He's walking around Nineveh. He's looking around. He's noticing everything. He's supposed to share a message. He says this. You're going to die in 40 days. Hey, Nineveh, here's the message. You're going to die in 40 days. This is the most pitiful sermon of all time. And yet God does the work. You see, when you proclaim God's word to others, when you bring God's word with you, when you run to scripture first before presenting your solutions or your sentiments or your suspicions, and God's word is the basis and the foundation by which you engage in conversation and the basis by which you are hoping and clinging to change in the lives of others or in a country, God does the work. So Jonah gives this pitiful sermon. And here's what we read happens. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow. Jonah delivers the most pitiful sermon of all time, says you're going to die in 40 days. And it says, Nineveh believed. Everyone in the city, even the person at the highest place, the king, bows before God, repents, in sackcloth and ashes. And this repentance is so profound. This faith is so strong. The change is so drastic that the entire city does a fast. There's a proclamation that the whole city is going to fast, presumably for the entire 40 days that they're waiting to see whether or not judgment's going to come. And the fast involves the animals. Everyone's doing a fast. Anyone that can drink water or eat food is going to fast for 40 days. Now, there's no shade here. There's no judgment here. But I know many of you have been Christians for a long time, and and you've maybe never done a fast. 40 days. New to faith, 40 days. You may have thought to yourself, I can't can't fast from food. And someone came to you and said, well, don't fast from food. Why don't you fast from coffee? I'd rather give up my left leg than fast from coffee. Are you kidding? As Lent approaches every year, we as a church, we fast for 40 days of Lent. And I don't know if you've ever been in this place where you've thought, okay, we're supposed to fast for 40 days. Uh, What is the easiest thing that I can fast from? And I'll still accomplish it. I know I've been there before. Confession, repentance. Everyone in this city fasts, even the animals. That's when you know it's real. 
that's when you know it's profound. It's when you look at your dog or your cat and you say, listen, you're not going to eat any food or you're not going to drink any water because I messed up. Can you imagine? Whole city fasts and have no assurances, no guarantees. Maybe in 40 days, God will relent. He will not pour out his judgment upon us. 40 days is the, the number of testing in Scripture. We see 40 days that God calls the Israelites to wander the desert as they are tested. Not 40 days, sorry, 40 years as they're tested in the wilderness. Jesus goes for 40 days into the desert and he is tempted. He is tested by Satan. It's a number of testing. So they're fasting for 40 days. You have to imagine that 39th day, that night, what's tomorrow going to be like? What's going to happen? It's probably like the Y2K moment. Some of you remember that, 1999, New Year's. You're like, 1201, is it all over? What's going to happen? I remember playing Madden, 1999. I was like, if, if the world's over, I'm going to be playing Madden franchise mode. But it had to have been like this. 39th day, what's going to happen? Day 40 hits, and God shows his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness to Nineveh. See, we are people that are tested. James chapter 1, verse 3 says this about our faith. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That we're tested in our faith. And the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Philippians 2.12 says this, To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is a testing. There is a working out of your salvation. And we, like the Ninevites, wait. See, we don't wait in the same way, but we do wait. They were waiting to see whether or not God's judgment was going to be poured upon them. And on day 40, they realized that God is a God of grace and love and forgiveness. As he looked upon them, and he gave them grace. Verse 10 in Jonah chapter 3, says that God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not. God proved to be everything that Jonah feared he would be, which is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. You see, church, as we are tested in our faith, as we work out our faith, as we are people of faith and repentance, we wait, but we don't wait to see whether or not we've done enough or whether we have fasted to the right degree or whether or not God is going to, in fact, judge us or curse us. No, we don't wait like that. We wait to experience the full measure of God's grace because we know that our future is secure. We know that our judgment has been paid for on the cross. We know that our wickedness has been done away with because of the cross. We know that our future is secure. We know that our history has been changed because of what Christ has done, because of God doing the work. Because God is a God who is against sin, and he's against evil, and he's against injustice, but he is moving toward his people. 
He is moving towards us with mercy and forgiveness and grace because our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and sixth chances and how many chances. We can keep going. He is a God of grace and mercy. And we wait with joy knowing that one day we will experience the full measure of his grace as he will make all things new and he will invite us into an eternal relationship with him that is full of beauty and joy. You see, church, it is the same God that says to you and to me that we are to work out our faith with fear and trembling. That then in the second half of the verse says this, because it is God who works in you. Work out your faith with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. God has done the work and he will do the work. And so you and me can now get to work. You believe that? God has done the work on the cross. He will do the work so now we can get to work for his good pleasure. We can not just stand against people, crying out against people, because of their sin or their evil or their injustice, but we can actually move to people. We can proclaim to people that we believe a word, that there is a word that is a word of grace and truth and forgiveness and healing. God has done the work, and he will do the work so we can get to work, church. I pray that this word would be a word for you and for me. As we navigate this storm, we would see a God of grace. And I want to invite you now to, to pray a prayer with me. I was reading this book this week that I pick up sometimes. It's a, a diary of private prayer. It's a great book. We'll throw the, the link in the, in the chat if you want to pick it up. But it has about a month's worth of prayers, one in the morning and one in the evening. And I read this prayer this week, and I thought this was a a great prayer to pray together as a church. It's a prayer that you can pray if maybe you have felt as if you have blown all of your chances, that God looks upon you with judgment. Maybe you feel like the Ninevites where you're like, I'm just waiting for the day where I'm going to experience God's wrath and his judgment. Well, you can pray this prayer and know that you're God that loves you, that moves to you forgives you. He provides you grace when you believe in the finished work of Christ. And maybe you've been struggling in this season feeling like you're blowing opportunities in second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And you're praying for God to renew your faith, to give you a sense of hope that he can change everything by the power of the gospel. Will you pray this prayer with me as well? So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and, and pray along. I want to encourage you actually just to pray out loud at home. It's effective when we pray out of our mouth. So would this be our prayer together, church? Let's pray. Father, I pray for faith to believe that you rule the world in truth, justice, and love. For faith to believe that if I seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, you will provide for my needs. For faith not to be anxious about tomorrow, but to believe that the love you have given me in the past 
will continue into the future. For faith to see your loving purposes unfold in all that is happening in our time. For faith to be calm and brave in the face of any dangers I may meet with while doing my duty. For faith to believe in the power of your love to melt my hard heart and totally remove my sin. For faith to put my own trust in love rather than in force when other people harden their hearts against me. For faith to believe in the ultimate victory of your Holy Spirit over disease and death and all the powers of darkness. For faith to learn from any sufferings that you call me to endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.